And it's like the world we're living in right now, someone else imagined it into being, imagined these constructs, imagined this hierarchy, and we've accepted so much of it as reality. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and I'm so happy to welcome you over the threshold of 2017 into 2018. All right, y'all, here we go, another year. And we have the perfect guest with us here today to usher us into what will hopefully be a gorgeous, deep, transformational year. And we're talking with Adrian Marie Brown. We discuss the imagination battles of our time, the conversations that need to really be had beneath the conversations that we think we're asking for, the relationship between critical connection and critical mass in movement building, how she manages her time and sense of urgency amidst all the busyness and demands, and the transition into the new year and how we mark and make meaning of that transition. Adrian Marie Brown is the author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements. She is a writer, social justice facilitator, healer and doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And she's also co-hosting a podcast that's brand new with her sister Autumn called How to Survive the End of the World. Check out the link to her blog with incredible writing and poetry and spells all the time and that podcast in the show notes. And make sure that you never miss a juicy episode of this podcast by going into your podcast app now and subscribing. And if this conversation moves you, you can also take a moment to give us a positive rating and review. It really means a lot. So thank you for being with us. And here we go. Hi, Adrian. Welcome to Healing Justice. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for hopping on. And it's so much fun uh, just setting up with you and kind of getting to work because I know I'm here with my microphone in my uh bedroom, aka sound studio in mm-hmm. uh, Brooklyn, New York. And I know you're over there at home in Detroit. Yeah. I'm at home in Detroit in my tiny little podcasting closet. Uh, <laughs> so yes, the fun Perfect. of podcasting at home, right? <laughs> Um, And I'm so excited that you're here talking with us, especially at the turn of the year. And I, oh, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I was thinking about the end of 2016 and like all of the Uh memes that were happening around uh, what a rough year that was. Yeah. And um, all the jokes about like heading into 2017 and how I'm, I'm not sure that for me, 2017 feels much different. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. Like, yeah. Like the the meme continues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like such a great time to sort of ground, survey where we've been and make some choices about where we're going. And so I'm excited that we're going to do a little bit of that together. Beautiful. Um, and I heard you talking actually through Liberation School, a webinar that you did in partnership with the Liberatory Leadership Project about writing emergent strategy, your book that came out this year, and um, 
writing it really more with an audience of organizers and folks in Black Lives Matter. Is that is that true? And then also like, how have you found it landing or who have you found it speaking to? Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, I've been facilitating uh, since I was a, a late teenager. Um, and I've been doing a lot of work with different social justice movements, like dipping in um, in places that I was like, oh, this feels like a place that I can be of use and of service. Um, so I really wanted to write something that reflected back the lessons I had learned from those movements and with those movements, um, lessons that hopefully could make the work easier moving forward. Um, and by the work, I mean uh, social justice social justice, environmental justice, climate justice, gender justice. Um, those are some of the areas that I have focused in, black liberation work, working with groups who are figuring out how to do nonviolent civil disobedience and direct action um, in right relationship with larger other tactics and strategies for creating change. Um, so I was very concerned with like, who's doing that work and um, where, as a facilitator, do I keep seeing us replicating the patterns of oppression um, that we say that we're fighting against? And where do I keep seeing us get stuck? And um, and so the book kind of bubbled up from those places. And I wanted to be as um, accessible as possible. And I wanted to be, you know, so I, I, I was like, I don't want to write a book that... Um, is more reference than relational, <laughs> you know? Um, I'm like, there's so much mm. out there and I try to point people in the directions of things they might need. But I also really wanted to feel like, like you know, ultimately it's me and different organizers or different folks who are reading this book sitting down together and just having a talk about what is the spiritual nature of what we're doing, the emotional nature of what we're doing, um, how, what are the strategies that of relationship building and relationship deepening that actually allow a movement to adapt together um, rather than just defaulting to centralized leadership, those things. So in terms of who's been responding to it, it's been really surprising. <laughs> um, uh, the reach has been surprising. Like I, I felt like, oh, here's my group of you know, a few hundred people that I know are interested in operating this way um, because I keep crossing paths and we keep being in these conversations together. So I'm like, I know you're into it. And that's kind of who I thought I thought would run towards this book. Um, and it's been a lot, the reach has been wider. So I keep hearing from different groups um, that are, uh, you know, like not necessarily working directly on Black liberation work, um, but doing something that feels connected or adjacent to that, um, other kinds of intersectional work that is, you know, I mean, some of it's just like other groups of color, but some of it is other folks who are like, well, we're working on climate, we're working on international relationships, we're working within the education system, um, we're working on building, you know, figuring out like what alternative methods of transportation could look like, um, all kinds of folks who I, I'm just very surprised to be like, oh, you're picking this up. And, you know, I was invited to the Obama summit and there were folks there who were like, oh, yeah, we're we're reading this and we're passing it around. Um, and then I keep showing up. You know, last night I had an event in Detroit to just report back um, to the city and to the organizers of the city a little bit about how the year has gone and what I've been learning. Um, 
And it was just really fascinating to see like who was showing up. It was really a mixed, you know, when I first walked in, it was like almost all white folks who were there. And I was like, what, (laughs) you know? Um, And then, you know, (laughs) black folks started showing up. But I think that's also been the interesting thing. It's just like, it has been um, leaping over the boundaries that I was thinking in terms of when I wrote it. And uh, I I think that's because it's not, it's not just like, here's Adrian's good ideas. Um, I feel like it really is, when I was writing it, I felt like I was tapping into here's some things that are true in the world. And if we can acknowledge and accept and surrender to them, then we can actually begin to shape change and work with the world. And they're, they're just true things in the world. They're not, um, it's not necessarily even open for like, let's argue about it. (laughs) You know, it's just sort of like, this is how the world operates. And this is how our natural world operates. And the argument is how, how much should we get in alignment with that? Um, and I'm just making the case that we should kind of go all in. <laughs> so, uh huh, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the degree to which you're really like holding the way that we do the work as a whole. And as you say, going all in, because I feel like, in some sense, like even the project of this podcast is to support folks who, who know that we need a different rhythm besides like extractive, forceful, change work and then like go crash and recover. Yes. Um, Like that loop of that back and forth. Right. And oftentimes even the self-care piece of that isn't present, but like, I feel like the self-care meme has sort of bridged us to a place where it's like, Oh, like churn and burn, like burn through your body, burn through your relationships, like push, 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 and then go do self-care and then recover from that. Right. And that it's like this, this Uh seesaw or this back and Uh forth. And what I love about what you're holding is like, what is the way that actually how we're working and moving and acting and planning and treating each other, like, doesn't have to be draining? I mean, would you would you put it that way? Or like, yeah, that the way that we do it doesn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's connected, right? Like, I feel like, to me, the drain should not come from our work to create change, Um, like there's enough that is draining about what's happening in the world. There's enough that's draining about our opposition and those who are really committed to, um, oppression and hierarchy and dominance and capitalism and racialized capitalism and white supremacy. I mean, the, there's, you know, knowing that those things exist in the world and bearing the brunt of them landing in our lives, that is draining and that is exhausting. Um, and so what, what I, what I want to work on or what I want to work towards is making movements a space that feel like I feel ease, I feel camaraderie, I feel that there's principled struggle here, that I can show up as my whole self and in my honesty, and we can get some work done. And, um, and I, you know, I've seen so many things happen. I mean, I've been to... I've been through different phases, even in my own understanding of facilitation. Um, but I've been through processes, long processes of mediation with people um, that were very conversation based and, you know, just watching people try to think their way through. And it kind of reminded me of, for me, the difference between experiencing um, personal therapy and then experiencing somatic body work and collective healing processes, um, where it was like in that personal therapy, a lot was happening. I was coming to new understandings and new meaning making for myself. 
Um, but I wasn't necessarily releasing the trauma or moving beyond it. Um, it was just more like, oh, I can see that there's a wound. It's bleeding. There it is. <laughs> Here's what the blood looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came across body work and Reiki and folks who knew how to do ceremony, um, it was blown, it just blew out of the water what was possible from my own healing and then the healing that I was doing in relationship and in community with others. And, uh, you know, now we look around and we have groups like Harriet's Apothecary, which are doing incredible work, or Spirit House, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. You know, there's different groups that are like, oh, we can heal together. Um, and there's ways of doing that. And there's both ancient ways of doing that, like ways that have been passed down. Um, and then there's ways that um, we can we can feel into and co-create together as we land into a society that is much more um, multifaceted and multicultural in a in a true sense, right? Um, like I feel like one of the things that my lifetime has been about has been what does it mean to come into relationship with each other that is a right relationship that's not um, master and slave that's not um, you know police and potential prisoner that's not um, boss and, you know, worker, um, that who's always working and never able to reach, um, equity. Um, you know, it's like, how do we start to, to turn those, that commitment to hierarchy into a commitment to being collaborative and being with each other? Um, so in, you know, inside of all that, I think, oh, facilitation is a way that you can bring that ease and that full-bodiedness into what we do as a collective. So rather than thinking, oh, we're going to only be able to talk our way all the way through um, to transforming all of our conditions, it's like, how do we bring our whole selves into the work? And how do we have conversations that are rooted in our whole selves being present? And what does that mean? It's like, oh, how do we make sure that um, we're all able to take these steps forward together? And you know, I came up in a period where it was like, if you were the smartest, if you were the fastest, you know, you kind of became the leader. And I think a lot of us now are questioning that, um, that it's like, oh, the smartest and the fastest, you know, that makes sense to elevate in a capitalist paradigm where it's all about getting as fast as you can, as much as you can. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's how you, how you generate value for yourself in the world. But I think if we're, if we're really trying to hold a post-capitalist um, paradigm for ourselves, then, then we have to think, oh, what are the practices we have come to take for granted that need to be slowed down and deepened? And a lot of that is about relationship and like, how do we, um, how do we build relationships of solidarity rather than um, saying, if we have a shared analysis, but don't really know each other, that that's going to hold up under pressure. Because right now we're under all the pressure. <laughs> we're under a deep pressure. Yeah. And so we need to be able to know that, like, when I grab your hand, I can trust that you're not going to let go. Um, even if my hand gets sweaty and even if I smell funky and even if, you know, you don't understand my <laughs> gender pronouns. And even if, um, you know, even if our vision diverges uh, up ahead. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But I'm like, oh, in this moment, we can really understand what solidarity can serve and we can grow together. Mm. I love this question around time because I feel like that's Mm -hmm. something that I really need to be like hit a deeper level with in the new year in order to be less drained. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like the very kind of dominant 
scarcity-based relationship with time of like the never enough. I need to be able to get more out of this than is possible to extract, right? Yeah. And um, I'm wondering like, how how do you think about urgency given yeah. that there are real reasons to be urgent right now? Yeah. Um, and yeah, how do you think about urgency and scarcity and like building, like slowing down, but also like being honest about the fact that a lot of things are speeding up? Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, I feel like I'm a student um, when it comes to urgency and importance and, you know, how to meet the needs um, that that I have in my own life, that my family has, um, that my community has. And then sort of at a larger scale, like, oh, how do we meet this, this, the, the demands of our time? And there's something about um, authentic urgency and false urgency that feels important. So I feel like there's so much about how work gets structured that's like, urgency is a measure of how important you are uh, and how much you're valued. It's like, are you the one who really needs to be mm -hmm. on all the time, all night, all day? And it becomes a way that you start to identify. It's like, I'm never off. I'm always on. I'm urgently needed everywhere. Um, that I think is not, it doesn't actually graft as being like very true for most people's lives. Um, it's true for this, like, you know, now our new cycle has been produced that way. So we find ourselves like, oh, if we're trying to keep up with the narratives that are being spread about us, we have to move at this speed. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're telling the stories that need to be told about ourselves, right? Um, like I think about that, you know, when I'm, when I'm on social media and, um, you know, it's like, oh, this hurricane just happened. And the speed at which I feel like, oh, I've got to respond right now about this hurricane, even, even though I'm like, I don't actually have something viable to offer about this hurricane. Um, I don't have an analysis of where it's happened. I don't have like resources to, to send a boat to, to do anything. So I think there's something for me in those moments where I'm like, oh, how do I slow down and find what I actually have to offer here and then make sure it's a good offer? Um, so, you know, I look at folks, there's a group of activist organizers that, um, that are, come from our power and, um, and the Ruckus Society and other groups that went down to Puerto Rico, took a boat, one of Greenpeace's boats down to Puerto Rico and, um, and it took a little while for them to get it all together, but they were able to go and actually have a meaningful trip that was connected with people on the ground and that was responsive to what people needed, right? And so that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing I think about when, when it's like urgency. Yes, there's urgency and there's still the importance of finding the right offer. And there's something in the Tao Te Ching uh, that I think about a lot, which is um, this concept of like having a glass full of muddy water and how you have to sometimes let the mud settle so that you can actually see clearly through it. Um, and I get, I get that thought process too, is I'm like, sometimes we're moving so fast that we are like that muddy water or we're like a snow globe that's been shaken up and we actually can't see where we're going and we actually can't see that we're caught in some little trap um, and we're just moving very quickly inside of it. And so I think about that a lot. You know, when I think of urgency, I'm like, you can be frantically moving around but not getting anywhere. And what's interesting to me is how do we actually move forward? How do we actually advance? Um, so some of the work that I end up doing as a facilitator is trying to figure out how do I 
How do I remove from the table the things that actually don't need to be on the table right now that are not not only urgent, but like they're not even near near us, right? So I find like people having arguments about stuff that might happen in a hundred years, and I'm like, cool. Um, you know, we just don't have enough information to have like informed <laughs> arguments about that. But what we can talk about is if our value in a hundred years, if we think our value of what we want to generate is that, then what are the political conversations we need to have now? What are the political experiments we need to be in right now? Um, and I think a lot about experimentation and urgency. Mm -hmm. That I'm like, how do we get into experiments where we are addressing things in real time, but also learning what we need to learn to move forward? Um, I think the mama's bailout process has been one of these, like mm. to me, I think a very, very successful experiment um, of what does it look like if we start to focus on those individuals that we can reach um, with the resources we can generate together? Um, what becomes possible if we start to, to pull uh these women out of the prison industrial complex in real time. And so it's not this like theoretically, you know, we should end the prison system. It's like, yeah, theoretically we should, but what do we do? What are the practices we start to do that actually move us in that direction? Yeah. 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 That campaign was profound in so many ways. Yes, it was profound in so many ways. And it was like so many people coming together to say, you know, I am an abolitionist, I've been an abolitionist, but here's something that I can do in practice in real time. Um, because in the in real time, it's like, oh, we're not just going to end this prison system tomorrow. Um, somehow, we have to be in practices of liberating people as we can. And also, I think, really getting into deep practices of transformative justice. So it's this combination of like, let's get people out of the existing system and let's turn up our practices around how we are with each other in, in a non-punitive way or a post-punitive way. Like we know that punishment only gets us so far and then eventually loops back on itself and creates the same conditions, uh, the same harm. Um, so how do we advance beyond that? Mm. And for those who missed the Mama's Bailout campaign, um, I'll put the link in the show notes for you to read a little bit more about it. Um, yeah, and you and it's not too late. Like, if you haven't missed it, they're still receiving resources and still taking mamas out of jail, like, right now. Yes. Okay, thank you. So it's great. <laughs> it's like an ongoing, awesome thing that you can keep contributing to. Awesome. Um, I want to ask you, too, about how this concept applies to your own life, because just witnessing, like, super from afar via the internets, um, I know that, you know, you've got your podcast going with your sister. Yes. Um, you've got, you know, the book that's taken off this year and of the facilitation work you do. I mean, many, many things, generative somatics trainings. Um, and <laughs> I'm wondering when it comes to, like, time management mm. and urgency, how does this work for you? That's so great. I love that question, Kate. Um, I, uh, that's a great question. Let's see, how do I manage my time? I mean, I have these kind of wildly divergent practices. Um, so it really depends on whether I'm home or whether I'm away from home. And a lot of time I'm away from home. Um, that's one of the things I'm shifting for next year is I'm really in a commitment to bring myself and bring emergent strategy back to where it all began um, and really have it rooted in Detroit. So the people, if you want that kind of facilitation or if you want that kind of um, development, then you come to Detroit to get it. So that's shifting. But 
for now, I spend a lot of time on the road. Um, and my time management is like this. I, I have some regular practices that I'm in every single day. Um, so I wake up, I do sun salutations, and I pull a tarot card. Um, and that's no matter where I am, no matter what's, what else is going on, that's how I start my day. Um, and then if I'm facilitating, that's my time, right? So on, on the days that I'm facilitating, and I'm pretty, um, like, it, I kind of become an introvert in the spirit of getting my, my facilitation and my work done. So I'm like, I'm working, and then afterwards I'm like, I'm not going out to dinner or partying or playing. I'm mostly going straight back to my room and, res- you know, beginning the process of restoring my energy for the next day of facilitation, the next day of work. Um mm-hmm. And then that's that's very different from like when I'm home, which is when I do a lot of my writing, um, either home or on an airplane is where I do most of my writing or creative work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love writing on planes. So I get myself a window seat and I look out at, you know, the clouds or the stars or the moon or whatever happens to be out the window at that moment um, and really try to bring that kind of light and energy into my um, into what I'm producing, right? Because I'm just like, oh, how do I how do I bring a cloud energy or a light energy into this? Um, which it seems a little silly to say that, but anyway, that's just what that's my truth. And then um, the podcast has been interesting. Like my sister and I um, recorded most of the first episodes of that when we were together over the summer. Um, and then we've done we did a few of them where we were apart, and now we're falling into a schedule of. Um, we're just having some regularly scheduled calls that we'll get on and be like, okay, what are we ready to talk about? Um, and we have like a, a whole list of things. Uh, my writing process, I generally will write my first draft um, kind of all in one go of like, here's everything I want to say about this and then step away from it for a day or two and then come back to it and um, edit with different eyes, with new eyes, I like to think, I hope, <laughs> um, mm. that I'm like, okay, here we go. Um, this is the, what the piece is. And then I think something that's been saving me time has been really surrendering to um, an editing process. So I used to, like when I write for my blog, it's kind of like I wrote it, here it is, you know, I'm doing the editing and then I'm letting it go. And there's been something so great about working with the team at Bitch Um, where it's like, I write the piece and I edit it somewhat, but I don't have to get it all the way to perfection necessarily, Mm. uh, because I trust Mm -hmm. them as an editing team. So I really can get like, here's, here's where I feel, I feel good with this. And then I send it over and then they like help me kind of, you know, they'll be like, oh, this feels like the opening and you've got it down here in the middle or something like that. And I'll be like, oh, that's totally true. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I very rarely have have issues with their edits. Actually, they do a good job with me. So, um, yeah, those are some of the things that I I can I know about my time. I'll also say I'm really protective of my evenings. Um, mm. I like to, you know, like. I don't know. I, I gave up sort of the clubbing life <laughs> pretty early and I really enjoy <laughs> like being home and I often will watch things in the evening. Um, I often will take a bath in the evening. 
Um, I like to journal and write in the evening. So I've gotten very protective of that time. And it's it's funny, like even when people are, are dating me or whatever, this is something we have to navigate is I'm just like, oh, it's my evening. Um, you have to mm-hmm. pretty, you, you know, it's like it's, you have to be really, really, really special for me to give up evening time. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I heard so much there about like being protective of just knowing what you need to do for your own energy replenishment. I liked how you yeah. said energy replenishment. I thought of like a video game where you like eat an apple and it's like do 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 do. I totally um, think of it that way, okay? I totally think of it as like I'm actually going out in the world and even if I'm doing work that's very exciting to me, it's often it still takes energy to do it. And then the nature of my work is I, I'm trying to work at depth with people who are like working on life or death issues, right? So what comes up, you know, what's on the agenda is not always what needs to come up or the conversation that needs to be had in the meeting. And a lot of times lately, what's coming up is that people are like, I've got a lot of pain. I've been really hurt. My heart has been broken by this movement. I don't know if I want to trust and keep moving forward. Um, And so when that stuff comes up, it's like, oh, I have to be able to root down further than myself and root back further than my own experience in order to be able to respond to it. And at the end of a day like that, I do need to go and sort of lay down, reground, reconnect with my spirit, reconnect with myself, reconnect with that force of the universe that is much larger than me. Um, and that that's a solitude practice. Um, or it's in community with people, like what I call my woes, but other folks who are working on excellence for themselves and working on regrounding. Um, so there are folks in my life who I'm like, we're in a circle, we're in a community of accountability with each other around taking care of our bodies and ourselves for the long haul. And that's something I tell people all the time. I'm like, you need to have people who are not necessarily um, directly benefiting or not benefiting from your movement work, who can kind of help you navigate for the long haul. Because I think sometimes in movement work, we can get very short-sighted and we're just like, you spend all your resource now, give it all up now. And I went through that process. You know, I became an executive director at a very young age and I learned very quickly like, oh, this whole movement, even though I think folks really love me and care about me, it will still use me up and spit me out um, if I'm not careful, if I'm not conscientious. And so I, I learned to, at an early age, like I have to protect my own energy in this and my own boundaries in this because otherwise, without meaning to, people will use me up and there'll be nothing left for me. And it's actually, to me, it feels like a more compassionate way to be in movement is to actually be good with my boundaries. I'm learning boundaries all the time and I slip up all the time, um, slip up around my own time, slip around other, what other people need. Um, slip up, you know, like I'll text people at three o'clock in the morning because I'm just up and like my brain is moving and I'm thinking about something and then I'll be like, oh no, <laughs> like I don't want you to answer that now or I don't want you to even be thinking about that first thing when you wake up. So, you know, things like that, that I'm like, how do we learn to be protective of each other's sacred movement energy? Because we still, in the grand mm. scheme of things, it's such a small number of people who are actually tuned in and have taken on like, oh, my responsibility as a human being is to improve the conditions of living for myself and those around me, those who look like me or those who are impacted by my privileges. So I'm like, that's a tiny, tiny, tiny handful of people. And we act as if it's a ton of yeah. people. We, to- we throw each other away too fast, I think. Mm. Um, 
but it's actually a small group of people and we need to be protective of each other and of each other's well-being and of each other's healing processes and of each other's um, rest, you know. Um, I was recently, there's an amazing organizer named Maria who was talking about how she's like, I'm a commitment to 12 hours of sleep a night. We were at this um, sort of healing space basically. And I was just like 12 hours a night, but it was such a good, like I felt like everything in my heart said, yes, I want that for you. And I want for so many organizers, just adequate rest, you know, adequate rest so that they can stay in the work for the long haul. Yeah. Well, That makes me think about, too, the way that you relate to creativity because Mm. the things that you talk about with imagination, and I've heard you say, or maybe I read it in Emergent Strategy about that we're engaged in an imagination battle. Mm -hmm. And that feels like like the thing underneath the thing. When you're talking about facilitation, sometimes the thing people are saying they need is not really what the conversation that needs to be had, right? Like, I think a lot of urgency gets wrapped up in, you know, what needs to happen now, And then we're tired or rushed or anxious or in stress response. And so then our, like literally in our brains, we lose access to creativity, right? Yes. And I would love to just hear more about like, what is the role of imagination in organizing for you? I love that. Um, Yeah, that imagination battle framework, I... I first saw Claudia Rankin had done some writing and thinking along those lines. And then um, Terry Marshall, who does amazing work with Intelligent Mischief out in Boston. Um, I was at a, uh, I think they called it Black to the Future. It was like a panel in Boston um, early in the emergent strategy journey. And he talked openly about this imagination battle and and what it looks like. And um, him and Kenny Bailey um, blew my mind. And I was just like, that's totally what it is. Like it made sense to me in a way that almost, almost nothing else ever has. That it's like the world we're living in right now was actually someone else imagined it into being. And we've accepted so much of it as reality. So someone imagined these constructs, imagined this hierarchy, imagined that there would be some who were superior and who those would be. Um, and imagined that, you know, we could only move forward with a punitive system. All of it is just like, here's someone's imagination that, that they, you know, had a wild thought. And then we've had some wild imaginings on our side. So, you know, when I think about people who, the fact that black people survived slavery at all, that there's anything that came all the way through, to me, is a testament that there were folks who were radically imagining getting free um, and strategizing, you know, waking up from that dream and being like, okay, here's how it's going to go down. (laughs) And we're going to try it. And we are going to try it at the risk of death. And we're going to try it. We're going to keep learning, right? We're going to keep learning. Each time someone gets caught, we're going to integrate whatever lessons we can. Um, And each time someone makes it all the way through, we're going to integrate those lessons. So to me, there's something really important in in being like, oh, we are of a legacy of the people who imagined our survival. And now it's time to be part of a legacy of people who are really imagining a way forward, a way beyond these constructs. Um, And it's not new work, right? It's it's been the work. Um, But I feel like sometimes it's easy to forget the work because we're so busy just reacting to um, the conditions of the day. And right now, there's so much that's being thrown at us every single day that makes it very hard to think forward, right? Everything everything that's being thrown at us now is like, just turn your face, turn around, look backwards. Back behind us is what was good. And we're just going to fight to keep the bare minimum of something that 
is already behind us. And to me, that's mm. very unsatisfying. Um, you know, I, I want to keep moving forward and I'm of a people that want to keep moving forward. There's nothing behind us um, at this point that I would want to return to. You know, like when I look back and I'm like, oh, well, maybe there were times when we were more physically free um, as black people than we are now. But in a lot of those situations, we still had patriarchy or there was still capitalism or competition. There were still other systems that weren't functional or we just were not global. We weren't connected to a lot of the other peoples um, that are out there. And right now, you know, I feel very excited about the level of connectivity that we have of getting to know what humans are doing all around the world and to learn from what humans are doing all around the world to not say, oh, well, if it's this way right here, then this is the only way. But saying if it's this way right here, maybe someone else has figured it out, you know, um, figured out like we had this, you know, the interesting situation go down where um, as police forces were closing in on activists in Ferguson, that organizers from Palestine were tweeting and being like, hey, here's some strategies um, for dealing with tear gas when it comes. Um, to me, I'm just like, oh, that's so fascinating, right? We're not a small island fighting injustice all by ourselves. Um, these patterns of oppression, are they go all around the world. And we... Um, we can share all around the world the lessons we're learning for resistance. Um, that to me feels very new and very exciting and very like, I'm like, oh, I want, I want as much of that as I can get. Um, and I feel like this is a moment where being like figuring out like inside of this imagination battle, what is the skill set that takes our dreams and turns them into reality? Um, and that's not about like, I'm producing something that I need to pitch or sell, um, but rather like I'm growing something um, that's going to burst the seams of an outdated imagination, an outdated imagination that can't hold us. And I get really excited mm. by that where I'm like, oh, how do we grow dreams that are so big they can't stay in dreamland and then start growing and building experiments with each other that I love this idea of like bursting the seams of the old, <laughs> right? Of just being like, okay, mm. good, like a snake skin. We've outgrown that and we can leave that one behind and we can keep moving forward. Um and, you know, the contradiction there is like, how do we hold our elders and how do we hold um, older wisdom in that? But I, there's always been a way, you know, it's like, I think there's a reason why there's a cycle of life and death. And I think there's a reason why we have so much energy for action and movement when we're younger. And then it starts to shift into a much more of an energy of reflection and wisdom and mentoring and guidance as we get older. Um, it's like, oh, yes, now that you've been there and you've got some experience, like pass that on, uh, but pass it on in a way that encourages and invites that energy of youth forward rather than smashing it, <laughs> you know, because um, mm. I, I think that that's one of the things, you know, that we see happen in our current society is we smash our young, you know, we're like, oh, you're so brilliant and creative and there's so much wonder and imagination. Um, and so we're going to send you into a school system and teach you to be like everyone else. And you're going to get punished for those differences. Um, and, you know, I, I get excited to be an auntie, a radical auntie, who's like, my job mm -hmm. is to cast some protective shield around the most imaginative parts of the, ch the children that I love in my life and to be with other adults mm -hmm. who are doing that same level of like, we will protect you through these systems um, to make sure that you're, you get as much of your creativity intact as an adult that you can have. 
Um, and now as an adult, you know, when I facilitate, I'm trying to invite back out some of that creativity because how things are mm-hmm. is simply not, um, it's not a viable, <laughs> we don't have a viable present. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Well, and it feels in some way like the way you're talking about imagination is feels to me like a bridge from small to scale mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. like one of the things that I grapple with, I think just coming from an organizing background and a very uh, strategy focused community is that as I've gotten more into like the embodiment work and how are we deeply doing anti-oppression work in the mm-hmm. way we're relating to each other, like really a- attending to the, to the, to the small, yeah, like to all the little ways in which we're replicating things. I, exactly. I think I've been challenged and challenged well by, you know, my organizing like action driven strategy community around sort of the balance between like attending to those details that do replicate and become totally problematic and and also like being resilient enough to stay imperfectly in motion. Yes. And not have yeah. to like hunker down and perfect, which is also like deeply related to my shape as a white woman is like perfectionism is part of mm-hmm. the way that the dominant system shows up in my life and drains me and the people around me. Yeah. And I guess a, a question that I have is sort of about that concept of like small to big or as you say in your book, small is all or the, or the fractal concept, like, because I, I guess I've deeply experienced the ways in which when we're not getting the small right, it does make the big um, destructive. But I've, I've also experienced like getting the small right and that we know that that is also not necessarily enough or, or definitively not enough to challenge power structures at scale. Mm. Right. Like if we're all like developing beautiful communities, but there's still people making hella money off of like locking people up. Like, yeah. Yeah. What is the bridge there? Right. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about that kind of titrating between scale and local. I like that. Um, You know, I I think that the line, the way I expressed it in the book is small is all and the large is a reflection of the small. Um, And it's like the large, everything large is made up of small actions, small things. And to me, that's the key. You know, the key is in how the systems are created, like how the natural operating system is created that we're a part of is, oh, everything big is made up of all these small things. Like rather than having just a massive globe that's just like one thing, it's like, oh, this is made up of a million, million, million smaller pieces, smaller particles. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about, oh, what is the justice that we want to build? What is the new world that we want to build? I'm like, oh, our small practices deserve much more respect and how do we give that respect in such a way that it grows it? So even I would say this for me, the emergent strategy thing in and of itself is a great example of this question of scale, because I really was feeling like, you know, I keep having these conversations with people where we really want to do things in a different way. We want to facilitate in a different way. We want to see transformative justice come to the forefront. We want relational nonlinear work. We want to be more adaptive. Like people were saying that in all these small conversations. And in a way, writing the book was saying, there's permission here. We can all come out of whatever little closets that we're in (laughs) um, where we're like, I think there's a different way to make change. Um, 
and say like, you know, we're, we are learning other ways of making change and we're learning them from viral structures and um, bugs and systems that proliferate under pressure. Um, so then seeing how it's landed with people and how many people have come forth and been like, this is, you know, I have people tell me this on a regular basis. This is exactly how I think. This is exactly what I've been doing. This is the work that I've been up to. And then they follow that by telling me the stories of how they've had to hide it or kind of push it through or sneak it or work around, um, you know, work yeah. around the existing structures in order to practice it. And so what, it, you know, what that says to me is like, oh, we're large, like a massive underground mushroom. <laughs> you know, there's like, we're really, really big, actually. Um, <laughs> but we're big in lots of very small ways. And we're breaking the surface in lots of small ways. And one of the things that I'm interested in is, you know, I think critical mass is actually very, very important, but I don't think we mm-hmm. can get there without critical connections. And I think that about, you know, I'm like, I think large scale change is absolutely necessary. And I think we have to figure out what are the small scale changes that get us there. Um, you know, and I look at large scale, the prison industrial complex toward, you know, moving towards transformative justice from that place and restorative justice from that place to me is a great example. It's this massive, overwhelming system. And in order to really be able to say we have a society that can that can challenge and, and you know that, that system can truly fall apart, then we have to say we have other methods and we've been in practice. And if that system falls apart tomorrow, then we have people who are actually, you know, living and in communities and available who know other methods to to use when harm happens. So we're not just saying close the prisons, let's just have a total, you know, <laughs> crime fest, right? Which is some of the pushback is like, well, what would you do about, you know, this is what happens whenever I say I'm a fan of transformative justice is someone's like, oh yeah, well, what if someone murdered your da da da, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh yes, I don't think that <laughs> I like that voice. You clearly voice. love that question. <laughs> yeah, this is, I love this question. I really, you know, there's no stupid questions, right? But I do feel like whenever I get that response, um, it, you know, it always feels so reductionist to me and, but it also feels like, oh, like you cannot even imagine us practicing something different. Right. And yeah. that that's how change happens. It's like, yeah, it would definitely, it, we wouldn't say that no harms would ever happen in that scenario. But what we, we do articulate is that in order to get there, we would need to be practicing a lot of different things than we're practicing now. And we'd have to practice them at an interpersonal level. What does it mean at an interpersonal level not to dispose of each other? And what is the work we have to do? And that doesn't mean, oh, I have to stay in a relationship with the person who caused me harm, right? You get to have whatever boundaries are needed in that. But it's boundaries that say, for me to exist, I don't need this person to live in a cage, I need this person to actually do some healing. I need this person to get back in right relationship with themselves and the planet. That's what will actually generate my own liberation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I say this as someone who's a survivor, um, that it's still very hard for me to imagine that for the people who've caused harm for me. So I'm like, I know that part of my life's work is, is lining up my emotional landscape with this political value that I hold. And I think that that is the work that so many of us have to do. And to me, that's where fractals come in. It's just recognizing like, if in my heart, if I'm punitive in my heart, then how can I expect the society that I'm a part of to be anything other than that, right? And how do I then do that healing work at the level of my own heart 
Um, and not merely there, right? I'm not going to live my own life just being like, I'm just going to sit here in this closet and figure out how to get right with my, you know, pain. Um, but it's like, once I do that in my own heart, then I bring that into my relationships and I bring that into my organization and I bring that into my family structures. I bring that into random interactions on the plane. I bring that into how I interact with everyone. And once that shift starts to happen in me, um, and it starts to happen between me and others, then we start to find, oh, this whole unit is practicing something new, right? This family unit. Mm-hmm. I think my family unit, you know, we have shifted how we are with each other. Um, I feel like from a punitive system to a much more restorative system. And then I think mm-hmm. I think transformative is sort of on the horizon. But in that immediate family space, you know, we grew up in a household where it was like, if you did something, you got spanked, you got punished for it physically. And now we're raising the next generation of kids where that's not on the table. Um, and, and then in order to get there, we had to have some conversations as a family about what was the impact of that? What was, you know, and then how do we want to treat each other now in ways, you know, if we do cause harm to each other now, which we do, it's even worse now. We're all adults. <laughs> you know, we, It's like you could do better and you're not. Right. Um, and how when someone has caused harm, like the speed with which people in my family now apologize to each other, take actual responsibility for the harm caused, um, depersonalize things, because so often it gets stuck in the realm of the personal and they're like. Um, this is just between us rather than being like, actually, no, I'm going through all this other stuff that's hurting me. And then you just, mm-hmm. you, you know, you kind of triggered into that painful place. And I think so much of our pain is like, I didn't react where I was supposed to. Now I'm reacting at you. <laughs> so in families, that happens in a major way, right? We come home from work yeah. or come home from a, like this year, I think a lot of people are going to come home from this massive year of political output to spend time with family and just be like, you know, how do I not just spin out and go off on everybody? I'm so tired. And how to be intentional and be like, you know what, let's be gentle. Let's be soft with each other. Let's be post-punitive with each other. Let's be transformative with each other. So I think of that. It's like how to bring it to the family, how to bring it to a small scale with a big scale in your head that you know that like in this action, I'm connected to all people who are trying to create transformative justice, right? Right now, Mm. right here. Mm. It makes me think about too, like the um, the ways in which we're open to one another or we're not. And I like how you talked about not disposing of people and the, and that that can be inclusive of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just thinking of like the you know I've heard you also say you know thinking of everybody as a potential ally and the ways that folks in movement spaces have incredible amounts of great reasons to distrust each other, like the the intergenerational (laughs) traumas of injustice and then compounded with our interpersonal experiences of taking our pain out on each other. Like Mm -hmm. there's just a million and one reasons to go into a room of people we've never met and already be suspicious of everybody. Like, and there's a lot of justifications available to us in talking about systems of oppression to kind of defend that stance. Um, and yeah, I would love to just ask you a little bit more. I mean, even at the beginning, you talked about kind of like the level of burnout and the level of exhaustion that you see in folks. And what would a posture of of moving toward critical connection with each other and then also in our relationship to ourselves, like what does that require? Mm, that's great. I mean, I think one of the things um, 
is this concept for me, I think of it, the brave spaces concept, like moving from the idea of safe space to the idea of brave spaces. And there's things like this where, you know, I think it's like, oh, we're tapping into some collective intelligence and we don't even know quite what it is. Um, but like for me, I experienced this idea of like, oh, this just came to me one day, brave space. Like we need to be in spaces where people are brave enough to talk to each other. Um, and then I mentioned that to someone and they were like, oh, there's actually a whole study done on that particular thing. And then someone else sent me like an Instagram post that was like a meme about brave space. <laughs> and it just made me, I get excited when those things happen because I'm like, oh, right, mm. like none of us are off by ourselves on a desert island making genius things happen, right? Like we're all <laughs> thinking these thoughts and we start to awaken something um, and it awakens in multiple people. So this idea of brave space for me feels like the root of it. And the idea that we can't, act, you know, like when people say like the space isn't safe, like I want, I need to feel safe in order to, you know, move forward or make a plan with someone or whatever. Um, and I'm just like, I don't think there's any such thing as safe in the way that people mean. Um, Cause I don't think we can create, because we're living inside of these intersecting oppressions. I don't think that we can create spaces that don't have those oppressions within them, right? The oppressions are within mm -hmm. us. So as soon as we walk into the space, capitalism and patriarchy and dominance and hierarchy and, um, you know, elitism and all of that is walking into the space with us or internalized racism is walking in the space with us. Internalized inferiority complexes are walking into the space with us. Um, a sense of scarcity, a sense of we'll never have enough and we'll never be enough, you know, whatever is trained out there in, in society is going to walk into the room with us. And so rather than saying we can create a safe space where those things don't happen, um, I, when I facilitate, try to create spaces that are brave, where we have basic agreements where folks know like, hey, I'm probably going to say something and you're going to say something. Someone's going to say something and some, or someone's going to do yeah. something that is culturally inappropriate or causes harm or is disrespectful or crosses a line, crosses a boundary. And what we want to have are spaces where people are brave enough to name what has happened in real time and to be solution-oriented, to figure out how do we continue, given that this harm has happened? How do we, you know, what is the amount of time we need to stop and turn and face this? And then what are we going to need to do in order to turn back and keep moving forward? And I think if you tilt too far one way or the other, you're in trouble, right? So I think if you, you know, spend all your time, like we try to create a totally safe space where no one says anything, um, then mm -hmm. you end up with a bunch of people who are walking on eggshells or being PC or, you know, they're saying the right things, but they're not living in accordance with those values. Um, yeah. But then if you tip the other way, um, you know, where I think you can be like, there's no such thing at all. And just say what you need to do, do what you need to do. And like, we need to stop being so fragile and stop being triggered by everything and like, just keep it moving. Um, and I think on that end of it, you have people who get stuck in their heads and people who have are stuffing their trauma down and stuffing their feelings down altogether. Right. So then you're in rooms full of people. Where I'm like, you can't even feel that you just caused that huge harm to someone. And mm. that harm means that you shut that person down and we've lost them. Right. So I'm like, if we have a room full of 20 people 
and someone says something patriarchal um, into that space and causes harm to folks there who are women or who are just actually, you know, sensitive to patriarchy and just like that hurts me. Um, those people basically just hopped off the line, right? If we're like all on the line together and we're moving forward, at that point, those folks will hop off the line and they may self-recover and get back on the line and get back to work. But a lot of times they don't. A lot of times they're internally checking out of the process and then we've lost them Mm -hmm. and slowly they like back themselves away because they're like, this space doesn't actually care about me. There's not room for me here. So one of the things I'm always trying to figure out is how do we get people to be online and to be able to say, you know, something just happened that took me off. Here's what I need in order to get back to rightness. And I often find if we actually turn and face it in real time, um, if we have the capacity to do that in real time, then it moves pretty quickly. Like if people get into a practice of like, oh, ouch, you know what? You just said something that really offended me. And then that person could be like, you know, that's not what I intended, but let me attend to the impact that I caused, um, which is always a big um, agreement that I have in a room. It's like, it, it doesn't matter what your intentions were, uh, but we can assume good intentions. Like we're going to assume like you didn't come in here trying to offend me. Um, but once you have offended me, let's attend to the impact. And then there's something about being satisfiable, right? That you should like, once someone does turn and face the Mm -hmm. impact or does apologize or does take the necessary steps that we also have to figure out, okay, how do I get in right relationship with that? How do I not continue to hold it forever? Um, But how do I let Mm -hmm. the apology happen? And if I find that "Mm, I don't believe this apology, right? Or this person has apologized so many times now that I'm just like, no, forget it. Um, Then how Mm -hmm. do I set the boundaries I need to set that still uphold my dignity and the other person's dignity? And I've been in a a lot of spaces of getting to hold that. You know, I call it kind of the breakup conversation, even though a lot of times it's not a romantic breakup. But it's saying Mm -hmm. like, you know what? We're actually not compatible either to do this work together or to build this institution together or, or to be in an alliance together. And I wish you well to go and do your work and I'm going to go and do mine. Um, but it doesn't make sense for us to work together. And I think we need more groups and more individuals to be able to make that move as well, to be able to say like, this isn't compatible. And, you know, it being compatible doesn't mean that like a huge harm has happened. Um, if we name it as incompatible early, then we can avoid some of the harm that comes from people staying too long in containers that are actually not meant for them. So I think there's, I think there's a lot in there around like, oh, here's the practices. Here's the the actual practices that we have to be in in order to shift how we are with each other. Hmm. And I know you do somatics work and I can feel, I mean, I'm really trying to be in the project of discerning like uh-huh. what you just named around when is that, when is the container not fitting and when is the time to like hop back on the line and to develop some resilience. Right. And yeah, like, yeah. it's, it's very nuanced. <laughs> yes, <it> um, is. <laughs> and I feel like there is a clue for me and that I'm trying to learn to trust around like when it's time to shift is usually when like I can feel my shape kind of getting smaller and smaller. And that's when the performativity happens. Yeah. That's when the walking on eggshells happens. That's when the, like we're saying the right things and not offending anybody, but that doesn't mean we're living it. No one's actually here. (laughs) Yeah. No one's actually here. And then, and like we're making ourselves smaller to as if that's the way to do harm reduction. And 
I feel like the way you're talking about imagination just feels expansive and big bodied and wide, like in the best way. Yeah. Um, thank you. Well, you know, I mean, I, I will say this, I've written about this some, but I, I, I was at the Ruckus Society for five years and, um, am now, um, on their board and I, love that organization. But one of the things I learned while I was there is when I first came, um, I was basically walking into like the detritus of, you know, some anti-racism work that had really left people feeling like no one knows what to do, right? Like the people of color don't know how to ask for what they need in terms of like skill development and relationship development. And, you know, just like, how do we actually blockade stuff and lock shit down and, you know, <laughs> repel off of buildings and like, you know, just really hardcore stuff that's like, we want to be able to do this. And we know that our movements need that level of skill and the folks who have it, uh, a lot of them were a generation older, a lot of them were white, and a lot of them were folks who were coming from like a climate or environmental juxtaposition, right? And the way that stuff had gone down had left everyone feeling like shrunken and small. Or the other thing that I think happens sometimes, which is like puffed up really, really big, you know? So it's like, I'm not just in my blackness, but I'm in my blackness times a gazillion. And none of you white folks should even talk to me. Um, and, you know, I'm just like, hey, that's a great stance if you want to be in an all black space and an all black movement that doesn't need to do any multicultural work. Um, and if that's for you, I'm like, by all means, go and do that. But a lot of people are carrying that stance while they continue to show up to work in um multiracial organizations. And then a lot of white folks are carrying a stance of like, either I can never figure this out. I can't get it right. I'm not going to try. Or mm-hmm. um, I can never even be worthwhile. <laughs> like my life can barely matter. And I'm just going to shrink myself for the rest of my life and hope that if I shrink small enough that, you know, people of color will like respect me. And the whole thing is just like pretty gross to be around, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm constantly trying to figure out is how do we right size ourselves, like our spiritual selves and our movement selves, and where that means, um, like taking up less space doesn't necessarily mean shrinking. And it's one of the things that I've been really trying to to tune in, right, is that like I can take up a lot of space, um, but without shrinking, I can also step back and I can be one of the people who's holding the space. Um, or I can step back and I can be one of the people who's like supporting someone else to step forward in the space. Like there's a lot of ways to use the massive, vast energy that I have. And they don't all require being like me, 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 um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I like facilitation. Uh, facilitation is a way that I'm allowed to mm-hmm. be as expansive as I can be. And that's what's called for in any room that I'm in is like, I need to be able to drop down and fill this room up um, and be a solid foundation for people to step on and off of in this space um, or step in and out of, you know, however you want to see that metaphor in your head. But I want to be vast in order to do that work and shrinking myself won't work. And it it doesn't work generally. Um, So I think that I love that as an indication that it's like, oh, this might not be the right time or this might not be the right space. The thing I always caution people around, like, you know, when we do, when I do like facilitation where we do the like emergent facilitation where it's like, okay, now it's time to move into some self-guided, self-generated small groups, right? What are the most strategic conversations you can imagine being in? And 
go and have those conversations. And one of the things I, I think about in those spaces is like, how do we not reduce any of the content that we're dealing with? How do we make sure that everything is like robust and fully explored and fully held? And how do we make sure that we're making room for lots of different and divergent ways of thinking? And in those spaces, if someone's in a small group and they're like, oh, I'm going to leave this group now, I'm going to go, you know, I want to move to a different one. Um, it might initially because they're like, I feel like I'm shrinking, but sometimes it's because that that there's a feeling close to that that's actually about accountability, <laughs> right? Where it's like, mm. oh, actually what's happening is people are letting me know that something about the way that I'm showing up is causing harm or is taking too much or is overpowering the space. And how do I how do I check that and move back? And, um, you know, I think we're in an interesting space right now when it comes to um, somatics because we have a lot of people out there now who have come through this methodology and learned this framework and learned some language and learned some practices around it, been in those practices for a while and it's starting to have an impact in movement spaces. And now we get to be curious about like, oh, what is the impact? Like, what is it, what does it feel like when a lot of people can actually feel what's happening in their systems, right? Um, and mm. feel it in a common language way, right? Because I think there's a lot of people who've been able to feel that or who've been generating ways of feeling that, but hasn't necessarily intersected with movement as like, here's a core practice that a lot of people in movement are doing together. And I think there's something really interesting about having a lot of people in movement together who are saying, we're all doing this centering practice now. Um, and I think it's something to be, like smart and cautious and, and around is like, this is, you know, it serves those that it serves and it, it works really well for those that it's working for. And we get mm -hmm. to be in an experiment with how do we do this well um, in a way that doesn't dominate or a way that doesn't say now everyone has to do it the same way, <laughs> right? Um, there's like lots and lots of ways to feel. But the important thing is, uh, I think at this point in movement, yeah. You have to be able to feel in order to feel the necessary boundaries and the necessary places to expand, like to feel like what is the right way to be in my whiteness in a space. It's hard to feel that if you can't feel right. Um, how can I tell when someone is actually an ally? It's really hard to tune into that if you can't feel your gut. Mm. Um, and I think for a lot of people, your gut is sending you data all the time that you're ignoring. And so it's like, oh, how do I bring that? How do I bring my gut online? Um, when I think about what happens in the most exciting rooms full of somatic practitioner work and somatic healing work um, is that you watch people be able to say, oh, I can feel this. And from feeling this, I can start to make some distinctions and choices around how I'm going to respond. And I'm no longer going to be just a victim of my reactions. I can feel into what I long for and how to move towards that. And that, mm. to me, that's what it's all about. And that's what we're trying to get on a movement level, you know, when I look at like standing in a room full of people who are like, okay, we're strategizing together. And what we want to strategize is how do we feel our way through our current paradigm and the current limitations towards something else. And movement generation has this really beautiful way of framing it that they talk about what is politically possible and then kind of what's happening, which is often in the realm of false solutions um, is, is because it's like, oh, false solutions are politically possible because they're deep compromises that actually serve no one. <laughs> so how do we make the things that we long for politically possible rather than just false solutions? And it's something that I'm like, I think it happens at a felt sense. Like when someone comes back and says, oh, here's the compromise. You can tell that it's not good. Your gut knows 
right? This is not good enough for me and for my people. Um, and how, how to trust that gut knowing, even if you're like, I haven't pulled together all of my analysis, but I know this is not right and I'm not going to settle for it. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. and I think that like, we need that kind of efficiency of feeling where it's just like, I can feel that this isn't right. I trust that feeling and that a group of people can begin to feel that together. Um, which happens, it happens all the time, um, that, you know, someone will walk into a room and say something. And I know this happens for me as a black woman, I will look around and look at the other black woman in the room and be like, Oh hell no. Um, <laughs> and I'll just mm-hmm. know, and we don't have to have a whole long talk about it. We just know it's not right. And sometimes we know it well enough and trust each other well enough to make the intervention without even having to have a whole conversation around it. Um, to me, that starts to feel like, oh, we're flocking together. We are avoiding predation together. We are moving very quickly um, away from harm and towards our longings together. And that then, to me, when we're able to do that, movement starts to get very, very exciting. Um, but I don't think we get there without taking the time to have those slower conversations, deeper conversations, and and a lot of consent work, too. It's saying, like, I consent to being in movement with you. I consent to being in these deep conversations, to being in some deeper relationship with you. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm like, I don't really want to be in movement with folks who I don't want to be in relationship with. Um, mm-hmm. And I learned that a long time ago that I'm like, oh, I can't. I don't really want to spend time. <laughs> I was like, if I don't want to spend time with you, I don't want to spend time with you, whether we're in the movement or not in the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean I can't like respect your work and that we can't really be allies and like supporting um, the movement forward. So all of that to me, though, is grounded in I can actually feel my feelings in real time and take responsibility for them. Um, and I know that they're a force that's actually in motion and movement and that all of us are moving with complex emotional patterns um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think if we deny that, yes. I, I just feel like that, you know, for the first like decade of my movement time, I felt like a lot of denial or just like silencing around the fact that like people, some of this stuff is just personal, interpersonal. Um, some of it Definitely. is just like a feeling. It's just like, I just don't really like being around this person. It's like, we don't have to turn that into a whole analysis necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we do have to figure out, um, how to be in movement with people that we don't necessarily agree with or don't necessarily like and how to still keep building analysis and building moves forward together. Mm. Well, I want to ask you, and that, you know, to, oh, sorry, ahead, I was going to say like, that doesn't mean being in organizations together. I think this is the distinction I want to make is like, mm. you can be in movement with people that you're not in organization with. Um, and I think that yeah. we need to be really good about that. And you can be in organizations that are formal or informal. Um, but to me, the being in right relationship piece or like I want to be around you has to happen at that organizational or collective or group level. But then at a movement level, we also have to be able to say we have political differences and there's there's this many of us right now that are even trying to make this move. And so we're going to support each other and figure out how to make the move. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask you, Adrian, about the practice that you're offering us that folks can take yes. some time today or this week to do on their own. What is it about? Awesome. So one of the things that um, I've been up to for a while now and have started like coming out of the closet with is um, that I operate as a witch and I do some spell casting. And I think that spell casting is... Um, and conjuring. There's just rich histories of this that almost every 
people, every lineage that I have come across and studied and looked at has some access to. If you reach back, um, people call it a lot of different things, but if you reach back into that lineage, there's usually people who were intentionally tapping into magic or tapping into energy that was beyond the material and tangible. And um, I've been thinking, oh, in this moment for our species and for our movements for social justice and environmental justice, we're up against such overwhelming odds that we really do need something beyond ourselves um, to help us. And so I have a few spells that I wrote that ended up in Emergent Strategy. And then I have a few spells that I've generated since then. Um, I'm actually generating spells all the time, regularly coming up with spells. And so one of the things we're going to be doing for this practice is we're going to create a spell. Um, and I'm going to ask folks to create spells for themselves as individuals and then also uh, movement spells. And these will be spells that carry us from 2017 into 2018 with as much intention as possible. So people should bring you know, some blank paper. It can be in your journal, as long as you don't mind, like some of it you might want to tear out because we can, we can let it go. Um, and then like your favorite pen or your favorite pencil. Um, and if you use a tarot deck, you can bring a tarot deck, but then, you know, just something to write on, something to write with, clear space at a table um, and ready, some readiness to reflect and we'll, we'll do some spell casting. That sounds awesome. That's going to be a new one for me and I am ready. Awesome. And excited about kind of reflecting on the transition from this year. So just want to thank you so much for hanging out with us and sharing you and your sister Autumn, sharing your brilliance and relatability and warmth through your podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. Thank you. Um, which if folks are not already subscribed, like now is the time. Go get your life and subscribe <laughs> to How to Survive to the End of the World. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, thanks for being with us and for the work you're doing to hold space for imagination and collaboration and togetherness and movement um, and yeah. for being a leader in that, holding that space for the rest of us. Let us know how we can support you and be in reciprocity with you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for uplifting the work in this way. Um, being in conversation has been really awesome. And I feel like I learned, <laughs> you know, I love conversation because I feel like, oh, you learn even your own thoughts um, in conversation. So thanks for this. And thanks for everyone you've been uplifting on the show. It's been, it's very exciting to have this podcast out in the world. Um, thank you. Thanks, Adrian. You just heard a conversation between Kate Warning and Adrian Marie Brown. You can download the corresponding practice to hear Adrian guide you through a special New Year's transition to cast a spell for your community. It's a really fun and really creative one, and I highly recommend that you block out the time to try it out. If the witchiness of thinking about writing a spell has you like, yes, and like jumping to download it now, then it's really for you. And if the idea of casting a spell makes you feel a little skeptical or uncomfortable, I also invite you to try it. I was raised evangelical, so I have plenty of history that comes up for me around thinking about this kind of thing, and uh, really love and appreciate the invitation to let some of that guard down and try on a new practice and to take it as seriously or as lightly as I want to. So excited to engage in this creative practice with Adrian this week. And so, hey, 
If you want to be more deeply part of this community in this new year, you can sign up to stay in touch with us at healingjustice.org and engage with us on social media. We are sharing quotes and images from our inspiring guests in conversation and practice every single day of the week. You can follow us on Instagram at Healing Justice, on Facebook, Healing Justice Podcast, or on Twitter at HJ Podcast. I think we have like three followers on Twitter, y'all. I do not know how to use Twitter. So tweet at me so I can learn how to tweet back at you. And our team is 100% volunteer and we're spending our own money to cover the tech costs of this project. So if you are in a position to chip in at any level, please join us by contributing at patreon.com slash healing justice. This podcast is generously mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. And thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us, including you. Yeah, you. Hear you next week.